Greetings. I'm Matt Matthews, one of the pastors here at First Pres in Champaign, and I'm happy to welcome you to our media ministry. Join us in person. We're located at the intersection of Church and State Streets, adjacent to Westside Park in downtown Champaign. Our traditional worship service is at 9 a.m. on Sunday morning, and on most of those Sundays, we offer French translation. Our contemporary services on Sunday begin at 11.15 a.m. When you come to First Pres, what you'll find, what I hope you'll find, is a community of people who support each other and who are passionate about making a difference in our community and beyond. You'll find relevant teaching for children and adults. We have at least a dozen Bible studies in small groups, including pickleball, that's right, pickleball, adult choir, a bell choir for all comers, and other programs and events designed to grow your faith and give you and me opportunities to serve. There's a place for you. I'm glad you tuned in. Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, starting with the first verse and continuing through verse 12. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, They removed the roof above him, and after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts. Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Stand up and take your mat and walk. But so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much for the invitation to be with you this morning in worship and fellowship. It is certainly a great delight to be here with you. Indeed, it's a great delight to be back in Champaign-Urbana 
where I live, after spending three interminable weeks serving as the parliamentary coordinator for our denomination's 225th General Assembly in Louisville, Kentucky. Now, some of us, particularly those among us who are skeptical about the institutional aspects of church, may cynically regard our periodic denominational gatherings as nothing more than occasions to enable institutional inertia, engage in political maneuvering to champion our pet issues, or network to advance our careers and perhaps our egos over calling. And I will concede that the General Assembly, this gathering of flawed human beings, can include aspects of all of these things. But it also opens to the whole PCUSA as we gather with God's presence among us, windows of opportunity for faithful risk-taking and authentic transformation. And you can see some of that in the insert in the bulletin about General Assembly. So today, reflecting together upon the vision in Mark's gospel, my hope is that we can discover a clearer, more complex and complete vision of the church and our purpose in covenant community as risk-taking disciples of the risen Christ. With just this kind of authentic transformation. Now Mark's gospel is a no-fuss narrative. In this gospel, we don't encounter long sweeping narratives of the birth or the resurrection of Jesus, no sentimental recollections of Jesus the Christ as he moves through his ministry. In fact, the author here doesn't even take time or space or words to explicate the deeper meaning of what he says. In the other Gospels, we hear about the teachings of Jesus in, in these lengthy kinds of narratives. But here in Mark, we see the teachings in crisp, clear snapshots. The first two chapters of Mark show us the beginning of Jesus' ministry and a focused vision of miracles, healing miracles. Of the 18 miracles shown to us in Mark, 13 concern healing, and four concern the radical kind of healing found in the exorcism of unclean spirits. So for Mark, the meaning and ministry of Jesus is rooted in profound healing and transformation. Very quickly in chapter one, we learn about Jesus's baptism, his temptation in the wilderness, and his gathering of the disciples. They arrive in Capernaum and Jesus astonishes everyone by teaching in the synagogue like one who has authority. Their amazement deepens as Jesus rebukes unclean spirits who name him as the Holy One of God, prompting the onlookers to exclaim in chapter 1, What is this? 
a new teaching. And the author of Mark tells us at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So it's in this context that we join Jesus at the beginning of chapter 2 upon his return to Capernaum to see the story of the paralyzed man lowered through the roof. The late ruling elder Cynthia Bullbach, moderator of the 219th General Assembly in 2012, used this passage from Mark for each of the worship services of that General Assembly. As she observed then, it's not a long story. A paralyzed man wants to see Jesus, wants to hear him preach. But because of the large crowd that had gathered at the house where Jesus was, the paralyzed man can't get through the crowd. Left to his own devices, he would not, indeed could not, see Jesus. But he is not left to his own devices. Others are there to help him. Not necessarily his friends, just four fellow human beings who recognize his need. They lift him up onto the roof of the house, they dig or cut a hole in the roof, and then they lower him down. And because of their action, the paralyzed man sees Jesus. The paralyzed man could not have seen Jesus on his own, and let's be honest, neither can we. Let's think about what paralyzes us today. The sobering reality of what some humans do to other humans in the name of following Jesus. The paralyzing grief we experience when untimely illness or death claims someone we love and we wonder how God could permit such a thing to happen. The loneliness of those on the margins in our ever-fragmenting culture, those who aren't seen or heard, those who experience ridicule or exclusion, those who believe they can never belong, those who become invisible. The stark threat of climate catastrophe, the possibility of nuclear war and persistent conflict, the understanding that the very world that sustains us may be deteriorating in profound ways. We can become overwhelmed by the vast sorrow and unspeakable grief of daily human life. Layer upon layer of trauma is piled upon us as gun deaths soar and no one seems to care. As war continues and no one seems to care. As hunger and disease continue to ravage children and no one seems to care. And just as individuals can become paralyzed, so too can denominations. We can be paralyzed by uncertainty and fear over what, what the future of our denomination may be 
in a cultural epoch that has been called not just post-denominational, but post-Christian. We can be paralyzed by grief over the possible loss of the church that many of us have known and loved for all of our lives. A grief that is no less real, even though we know that the church must change if it is not only to survive, but also to thrive. We can be paralyzed by perceived scarcity. Not enough ordained pastors or funding or congregants or resources. And sometime I will preach to you a sermon about how what we, what we measure is not what matters. We can be paralyzed by our cynicism or alternatively by our daunting recognition of the abundance of energy, imagination, intelligence, and love that is required for authentic transformation from institutional inertia. The Czech theologian Tomasz Halleck notes that, quote, at a time when evil is becoming globalized in a striking fashion, and our human intellect is incapable of sufficiently grasping these phenomena, let alone averting them, there seems little chance of resuscitating the optimism of the modern era." End quote. And Halleck understands such po post-optimism to be a good thing. You see, optimism, which we view as a redemptive something that relies on scientific or technological progress or human intellect, social engineering or reform, or even that church kind of optimism that relies on a redemptive something which, as Halleck affirmed, leans upon, quote, a consecrated state director who extricates us from our problems like a deus ex machina. All of these versions of optimism tailor God to fit our limited human visions, plans, and perceptions of what is good and right. They affirm the assumption that ripples under the surface of our belief that surely we always know, after all, what is best for us. Now, there's a lot we don't know about the story of the paralyzed man in Mark's No Fuss Gospel. We don't know what motivated those particular folks to step out of the crowd and take action. We don't know if they knew each other or if they knew the paralyzed man or if they even liked each other. We don't know how long it took them to punch that hole in the roof or really how they managed to do it. There's no tools mentioned in Mark's gospel. We don't know if they had to deal with the angry homeowner after the fact. And similarly, there's a lot we don't know about the narratives of scarcity that paralyze us. In many ways, it's the unknowing itself that prompts the paralysis. 
Halleck continues his reflection, wondering if the notion that a great deal within ourselves, within the church, within our faith, and within our certainties has to die off, has to be crucified in order to make room for the resurrected one, and that maybe that notion is quite alien for us Christians. It's news of the resurrection that marks the moment when we truly see Jesus. The moment when the Gospels become evangelion, the improbable, impossible, unimaginable good news that liberates us into community. During the Apostle Paul's lifetime, the church was not yet an institution or structural grouping of common practices and beliefs. The church was a living organism that communicated the gospel through relationships. What Paul describes literally as the body of Christ, animated by love. In such a community, we share hope, not as a rosy optimism that depends upon that redemptive something, but hope as that which, in Halleck's words, accepts reality and its burden, persists through every situation, and usefully serves others. A hope that opens us to the unmanipulated mystery of life, a space filled with the improbable, impossible, unimaginable. Jesus is not content with dazzling us with spectacular miracles or fascinating visions or unprecedented, unprecedented assumptions about who we are. Jesus asks us to see him, to imitate him, to be agents of the impossible. In response to individual or denominational paralysis, Mark's gospel shows us the way forward. We have to rely on others to help us. We have to rely on those who we know and those whom we don't know. We have to rely both on those with whom we agree and those with whom we disagree. We have to rely on those who can think compassionately and creatively, like the four folks in the, in the gospel narrative, to help us see Jesus. See Jesus in our neighbors and our enemies, as we reflected last week. And perhaps even to catch a glimpse of Jesus in ourselves. Because in this very seeing, in this togetherness, we participate in the embodiment of God here and now to become agents of the impossible. I believe that we who are a people of faith need to know that people in Japan are grieving 
and our neighbors to the north in Highland Park are in shock and families close to home are unable to, to pay for medical procedures. We who are called to serve need to know things in order to care for God's people. We can't serve people if we don't know what's going on in their lives. And as you heard earlier, we have great opportunities to do just this after this service today and again at, after the 9 a.m. service next week as we gather in Centennial Hall. Won't you be my neighbor, that phrase from Mr. Rogers, invites us to share with one another what our neighborhood looks like how we can welcome and get to know the strangers in our midst, and how we can share acts of kindness that will ripple all around us. The paralyzed man saw Jesus, and so did those who broke a hole in the roof to let him down. At the 1997 General Assembly, Frederick Beekner, the noted Presbyterian pastor and author, observed that he wasn't going to church much anymore because he couldn't find God there. But we don't engage in faith community to find God. That's really not the point. We come together because we're called to be saints not always good or pious or devout, heaven knows, but saints in the sense of just seeing and caring for one another. We come together as a congregation or a presbytery or a synod or even as a general assembly to help each other overcome our paralysis, to help each other see Jesus, to put out into the deep, as one author notes, to negotiate both the mystery of faith and the challenges of our life together. When we step beyond ourselves to do this, we set out on a journey together, a journey to break as many holes in as many roofs as possible in order to allow other people to see Jesus. People whom we might not choose as our friends, people who might not agree with us on theology or polity or politics, but people who want and who need to see Jesus, just as we want and need to see Jesus. When we set out on that journey, we don't know exactly how long, how contentious, how messy, or how difficult it will be. We may likely not even be able to see the whole path before us. What we know, though, is that eventually our journey will lead us to the foot of a cross and then to an empty tomb. And it is there at that empty tomb that God finds us. 
God finds us in all our diversity, in all our disagreements, in all our messiness, in all our human limitations, but also in the wonders of interwoven community, hoping against hope, seeking Jesus. God finds you, God finds me, God finds the church. Thanks be to God. Thank you for joining this podcast of First Presbyterian Church Champaign. Visit us at our campus at the intersection of Church and State Streets in downtown Champaign. And for more information, visit us online at www.firstpres.church. Have a great week.